Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Nitai Daitel, and I'm a senior program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today is Scott Moore, Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives and Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert on China, the environment and technology, he previously served as Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officer at the U.S. Department of State during the Obama administration and then at the World Bank. Our subject today is the relationship between climate change and national security and its potential implications for U.S.-China relations. Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Nitai. It's a pleasure. So we'll jump right in. Uh, first, uh, through decades of reliance on its status as a developing country, as a reason to avoid discussion of an action on environmental degradation, and reticence to take any action that might curtail economic growth or restrict its sovereignty, China finally declared climate change a national security issue in 2017 and began to take action. What are the domestic threats posed by climate change that led to this dramatic shift uh, in, China, in China's policy? Uh, absolutely. Uh, really, what uh, the first kind of um, uh, triggering event for, for uh, Chinese policymakers wanting to take climate change uh, more seriously as a policy issue was thinking about uh, the effect on China itself, particularly of climate-linked and climate-induced extreme weather events. Um, sadly, we have seen a, a really good indication of that um, this past summer, just a few weeks ago, uh, and the previous summer in the form of really extreme uh, catastrophic and intense flooding in central China. Um, last uh, summer, uh, it very unfortunately uh, was centered um, kind of in the, uh, the Yangtze uh, River Basin and, and including uh, having some, some significant effect on the city of Wuhan, which had of course just really kind of emerged from, uh, from the initial phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. So a really tragic kind of double blow. Uh, and then this summer, uh, again, just a few weeks ago, just sort of starting to abate um, really catastrophic flooding uh, in Henan province, um, which uh, again, sadly, has been um, is no stranger to flood to flood disasters. But the point is, um, we're really starting to see uh, these extreme weather events affect China in some ways disproportionately um, because of its rapid rates of urbanization and other things. And so that was really the the um, trigger for uh, Chinese policymakers wanting to kind of take climate change more seriously. Um, the other uh, important factor I think to highlight is just uh, the role that um, uh, uh, renewable energy, other forms of clean energy and electric vehicles, et cetera, kind of climate friendly technologies, if you wanna think about it, play in China's overall vision for its economic uh, growth and development strategy. For a long time, uh, an important part of that strategy has been climbing up the value chain, so to speak. So to move from lower value added manufacturing um, that's primarily geared towards um, you know, mass uh, produced manufactured goods uh, up to where you get to uh, electronics uh, and more sophisticated products um, that have a higher level of value added um, and particularly uh, then to uh, reach the point at which Chinese firms are really innovating and developing new types of products and, and technologies um, uh, that, can, that can then be exported and drive future economic growth. And uh, uh, kind of taking climate change seriously and adopting uh, more ambitious climate and energy policies fits into that 
framework because it gives um, uh, kind of an impetus to the development of, again, those sort of clean uh, energy, uh, clean transportation technologies. So taking uh, the issues in, in China and the issues affecting China, they really uh, have domino effects uh, around the world, but especially in its near um, periphery. A widely cited study showed that Chinese dams appear to exacerbate drought in the lower Mekong River. With hundreds of dams on the Tibetan plateau affecting a billion people downstream in India and Southeast Asia, how do you see climate change aggravating water-related tensions between China and its neighbors? Yeah, a, a really important question, and thanks for thanks for raising it, uh, Nitai. And we spoke um, earlier a little bit about just sort of extreme weather events in general um, being a, a key driver of uh, of concern among Chinese policymakers for climate change, and and a sort of driver uh, of more ambitious climate and energy policies. And I think within that kind of category of being concerned about the impact of climate change, water is probably the most significant uh, kind of issue there. Um, and I remember when I was uh, in around 2008, uh, 2009, just before the Copenhagen Climate Conference, which, you know, in a bit of kind of um, maybe uh, somewhat tragic recent history, um, everyone thought that that was going to be the conference at which we were going to get a, a really significant global climate uh, deal to replace the Kyoto Protocol, which was at the time the only binding um, uh, international agreement to reduce greenhouse gases um, for a variety of reasons, uh, not least those having to do with China. Uh, unfortunately, that, that uh, a particular conference kind of failed to uh, reach those aspirations. But um, I, at that time, um, I was doing a lot of interviews with, um, uh, with researchers, uh, uh, with uh, policymakers, um, and with journalists and others uh, in China, and just trying to sort of understand the thinking about climate change as an issue and how um, particularly uh, Beijing was, was going to approach uh, the negotiations leading up to that 2009 conference. And one thing that I, I heard several times um, is concern for um, the effect that climate change would have on the major uh, uh, Chinese rivers, which uh, are also uh, in many respects, uh, Asia's major uh, rivers. Uh, China is of course the headwater uh, region for uh, the Mekong, for the Brahmaputra, for uh, the Irrawaddy, for uh, most of the kind of major um, uh, transboundary rivers uh, that flow into South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, so I think it's a very, very significant concern um, and uh, an issue. Um, in recent years, um, we've seen a particular kind of concern and focus um, uh, on uh, the in, uh, on the part of uh, uh, of Indian officials uh, and the Indian public on the Brahmaputra, and then, as you pointed out, um, among a number of Southeast Asian countries with respect to the Mekong. Um, it's frankly a little bit of a complicated story uh, in the Mekong, and I think it's a little bit simplistic, the kind of um, story that you often hear that it's uh, dams being built within China that are uh, responsible for um, a lot of the, the issues that, uh, that uh, downstream countries in Southeast Asia are facing. That's certainly part of it, um, but I do think it's a, it's a more complex story. The fact remains though, um, that climate change is gonna have really se uh, severe uh, impacts on these transboundary uh, rivers. We're gonna see much more uh, unpredictable uh, flows. We're gonna see uh, more severe and more unpredictable uh, periods of shortage, as well as more severe and more unpredictable periods of flooding. Um, and one of the challenges that having um, all of these dams and other um, sorts of infrastructure poses um, is that it, it increases the, um, the demands on those structures. So if you have a really severe flooding event 
um, that you don't necessarily um, uh, expect or plan for, um, that can pose real challenges to whoever's in charge of operating the dam, for example, to know exactly how much water they should be letting through. Um, because depending on whether they sort of get that calculation right, you could end up exacerbating flooding downstream. And in fact, um, that's, we saw a little bit of that in um, China's uh, uh, catastrophic flooding last summer, where probably in an effort to uh, try to deal with this really intense flooding, uh, dam operators on the Yangtze let, uh, let more water uh, through than they probably should have, um, and that, that exacerbated flooding in cities like Wuhan. So there are definitely a lot of those uh, climate-related effects on water that we're going to have to uh, pay a lot more attention to. And I do expect that it's going to contribute to continued uh, tensions between China and its, uh, its neighbors with which it shares a lot of these water resources. So building on uh, this discussion of infrastructure, um, we have segueing slightly, China's Belt and Road Initiative um, has been expanding and, and many of the investments, whether it's dam building or a variety of kind of energy related projects uh, across the BRI uh, expand as while climate related stressors intensify. How do you see climate change affecting the success of the BRI? And what will be the impact of BRI projects on climate progress and ultimately on China's soft power on the global stage? Well, I think the most um, significant issue there um, uh, is uh, the extent to which um, BRI, BRI and uh, other uh, Chinese overseas investments. And I think it's sometimes helpful to, to remember that BRI is certainly the flagship and kind of catch-all category for a lot of Chinese overseas investment, but there are multiple kind of initiatives and vehicles. Um, so it's not necessarily the totality of uh, Chinese overseas investment, but it's certainly the, you know, the kind of bulk of it probably, or that's where a lot of the, the mass is. Um, in any event, the, the key kind of climate um, uh, factor there is the extent to which those investments are building out fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, so the extent to which uh, you know, that is, uh, that financing is being uh, channeled toward coal-fired power plants or uh, even uh, gas pipelines uh, or things that, that kind of extend the time horizon by which we can expect um, fossil fuels to continue to be the sort of lifeblood of the world economy. And just to kind of take a step back from a climate perspective, uh, I mean, we really, by the middle of the century, which, you know, is really only um, uh, 30 years or so uh, from now, um, we really need to be well on our way to uh, ending our long dependence on fossil fuels. Um, that is not a lot of time. The typical uh, timeline for uh, uh, like a power plant, for example, for uh, uh, the investment horizon is typically about 30 years. So, um, you know, you're really talking about having to turn the super tanker, so to speak, around, you know, in a very, very short, uh, short time frame here. Um, and so that's kind of the, the key, I think, BRI linkage, but you also um, raise a good point about climate change also potentially um, rendering uh, uh, either useless or much less valuable um, some of these BRI investments that may not necessarily um, uh, take into account climate, uh, climate effects. Things like ports that may be uh, really vulnerable to sea level rise um, or uh, in, indeed big hydro dams that aren't uh, that are built uh, in uh, rivers and in areas that are going to be subject to a lot of these changes in water availability for which the dams aren't maybe may not necessarily be designed for. Um, so it's certainly going to be something that's uh, that's affecting BRI. One uh, kind of additional point I'll just add quickly is that you know China has justifiably come in for a lot of criticism 
um, over the uh, negative environmental impacts of its Belt and Road investments. We are um, starting to hear and see signs and signals that um, there, there is some willingness uh, on the part uh, of uh, Beijing to, uh, and, and the uh, Chinese authorities to implement uh, better environmental standards and protocols to try to uh, make those investments um, a little bit more climate friendly, a little bit more resilient um, in the face of climate change. But so far that, um, you know, that's, it's mostly just uh, kind of talk rather than action, but, uh, but I'm hopeful that we'll see more action on that front as well. We certainly need it. Right. When we speaking of you know talk versus action, we have heard a lot lately of China's verbal commitment to addressing climate change and its its human causes. And while there is shifting on some of I saw a, a plant in Zimbabwe, a coal-fired power plant was you know the plans were were uh, scrapped because of the uh, potential environmental impact. Um, it does continue to invest in both uh, internationally as well as domestically coal-fired power electric plants, et cetera. Um, hardly clean or, or green technology. So, so bottom line, can you help kind of square for us just how committed is China um, to clean, to green tech, and if in the short term it, it does affect economic performance? Well, you know, I think when it, when it comes to a lot of things about, you know, sort of Chinese policy um, and maybe life more generally, uh, several things can be true at once. Um, and I think that's an important general point to make um, uh, about uh, kind of how um, we can understand China's policy on climate change. Um, I don't think it's, you know, I think you can certainly say that um, that there is a, a lot of deep um, high level commitment um, to reducing China's contribution to climate change. Um, and certainly last uh, September when uh, Xi Jinping committed China to uh, net zero uh, uh, carbon emissions by uh, 2060. That was really a landmark shift because prior to that, all of China's climate and energy uh, goals and policies had really been about just sort of um, making the curve of China's uh, greenhouse gas emissions less steep rather than actually doing anything to reduce it. Um, so that pledge was, was a landmark move um, I have to say, though, that um, while I don't doubt the, the, um, uh, the intention, um, the high-level intention, um, especially and including on, uh, from Xi uh, himself, um, I do think that's a very, very tall order um, with current technology and with current financing arrangements. And I think um, my concern um, is that um, that goal is far enough off and um, ambitious enough that it will eventually kind of get um, muddied, uh, watered down, uh, et cetera, so that it's not really gonna be in line with uh, climate goals. And in fact, uh, even putting that aside, that kind of concern aside, it does seem like what we're kind of seeing in terms of um, midterm uh, pledges and, and plans for how China will actually get to that long-term 2060 goal, um, it's not looking like uh, emissions are going to drop um, fast enough and steeply enough um, to avert uh, dangerous climate change. Um, so there's a lot of kind of concerns and ifs here. Um, but the last kind of point I'll add on this is that, you know, as in any system, I mean, you know, I think we're used to thinking of China as a pretty um, centralized top-down system, but in any large complex uh, country and economy, you have multiple 
uh, interest groups and schools of thought and points of view that to some degree you have to reach consensus among. And you certainly see that in China's climate policy where uh, there was just a report uh, last week that uh, the CCP Central Committee has actually directed that uh, China's climate measures be uh, slowed down um, for the time being really on macroeconomic concerns. So trying to make sure that uh, the post-COVID recovery is, um, is sustainable um, and that job growth uh, continues. So, you know, we do continue to see in China and elsewhere, you know, in the U.S., every other country, something of a tension and conflict between um, climate goals, uh, environment, uh, excuse me, economic uh, goals and other policy objectives that, that kind of get sometimes uh, can get in the way or sometimes be in conflict. And just as a final, final point on that, I think where we really need to head and something I, I highlight um, in the book um, is we need to try to um, move toward a point at which um, there is less tension between those different goals. Um, and I think part of the way to do that is to continue to invest in a new generation of technology um, that uh, uh, certainly reduces the cost, but also just makes it uh, uh, easier and more efficient um, to decarbonize uh, the economy. So particularly finding solutions that allow us to phase out um, the use of uh, fossil fuels in aviation or things, things like that. Um, and I do think in those areas, we do need continued investment to get us to a point at which cutting emissions and going green uh, doesn't have as much uh, intention with job growth with uh, macroeconomic performance, et cetera. That, that's a, a terrific segue as you really think about into the, the US-China implications here. And as both China and US now link climate action to economic goals in the form of GDP growth, job creation, developing green industries. And as you mentioned in your, your upcoming book next year, really kind of delving into the new ways to compete and, and cooperate um, on this front. But we really wanted to, to dive uh, uh, or kind of plunge even deeper on the, the economic security implications of increasing US-China competition in this space. Is this inherently negative or is this actually potentially the dynamic, the paradigm that uh, will help drive forward, you know, as you, you were just speaking about, the intersection of uh, climate action as well as economic growth as we look for a post-COVID, uh, toward the post-COVID recovery? Well, uh, Nisai, as you, as you point out, um, I, I think and talk a lot about competition in the book um, and how we can try to make progress on shared uh, goals and challenges like climate change, like pandemic prevention, um, despite, you know, a lot of tensions and issues and differences um, between the U.S., uh, China, and other major uh, world countries. Um, I think it's, and competition is certainly a word that you hear a lot in policy circles when it comes to China these days. I think it's worth just spending 10 seconds on what we mean by that, because I think, you know, kind of in the world at large, it's not always clear like what that means when it comes to China. Um, and I think basically you can think of it as a, a middle state between uh, outright cooperation, where we're talking about broadly positive, you know, kind of friendly relationships and we're doing things together on the expectation of mutual gain. Um, that's sort of one uh, extreme, if you will, although it shouldn't be extreme. That is ideally the state we, we want to be normal. Um, but then on the other hand, you have conflict, which is a you know, actual kind of antagonism and, um, and uh, really kind of an attempt or a, a frame of mind in which you're really trying to make the other side lose. So it's not just about thinking about how can we both gain, it's actually about how can I make the other side lose. Um, competition is sort of somewhere in between. We're not friends, but we're not enemies. 
Um, and it's sort of trying to, to say kind of a little bit more pragmatically, how can we move forward on some issues where our interests align um, while uh, recognizing that we're gonna have very serious differences and tensions on other issues. Um, and I do think that is unfortunately the state um, that we're gonna be in, in terms of certainly US-China relations. I think China's relations with a lot of other countries too, um, for uh, the near term at least. Um, and I think that's kind of the mode of thinking that we have to um, that we have to adopt. How can we sort of make progress under these circumstances? Now, when it comes to climate change in particular, I actually think there's less tension between uh, that kind of competitive strategy uh, and advancing on climate than some people might first assume. I mean, you very often hear um, the kind of phrase, well, we need uh, to cooperate with China uh, on climate. And to a certain degree, that's undoubtedly true. I mean, you know, we need China to show up at international climate meetings and, um, you know, be part of international agreements. But I would make two, uh, two kind of points. And, and I say this as somebody who uh, was uh, at the State Department um, uh, in the year leading up to the, the Paris Agreement, was, was there as part of the U.S. delegation. Um, and, you know, take very seriously and very seriously value the role that um, these international climate agreements have to play. Um, but I would make two kind of uh, points in that. One, both China and the US have already made pretty ambitious domestic climate commitments. I mean, as I said, you know, there are questions and concerns about, um, uh, about uh, China's in particular, but these commitments have been made. Um, I think the key thing now um, is to ensure that countries live up, uh, that the U.S. and China live up to those ambitious commitments um, and uh, prod other countries uh, to do the same. And so I'm not sure that is really a goal where you need, uh, you know, frankly, a whole lot of cooperation. In fact, um, I think it's an area in which uh, diplomatic and public uh, diplomacy pressure can play a role in trying to uh, make sure that that Beijing does live up to the uh, the climate commitments that it's made. And in fact, I think you've seen the Biden administration move a little bit towards this. John Kerry gave a speech last week in London um, in which he publicly said essentially that China's uh, commitments aren't ambitious enough. Um, that's a little bit of an unusual diplomatic strategy, um, especially uh, coming as close as it did to the uh, Glasgow Climate Conference um, uh, coming up uh, in December. Um, but I think it indicates uh, kind of some realization of this fact that um, really, I think we've kind of moved past the, the phase at which we need a lot of uh, kind of uh, uh, talking and mutual dialogue. And it's kind of now more, um, you know, uh, kind of show me the money, uh, put, you know, and sort of put talk into action. Um, the other point I would make, which I touched on before, is just I really do think we need a lot of investment in the next generation of clean technology. Um, and I think that's a, it's a scenario in which competition can actually help. If we can stimulate a race to the top uh, among governments uh, and, and countries of all kinds to try to uh, be the first ones to develop this new generation of clean technology that's going to help us meet our climate goals, you know, great. Um, let the, the best, most innovative country win the rewards of being able to power the future. Excellent. Um, as we think about the, the topic of the today's topic, na the national security implications of, of climate change, uh, most folks, their uh, initial thought will, will go to the military component when we, we talk about national security. And military leaders in both countries have long seen climate change as a national security issue. What are the potential military-related implications of climate change in a period of increasing strategic competition between the United States and China? 
Um, it, it's definitely uh, something that, as you point out, uh, military leaders have been thinking a lot about for some time. Um, I think when it comes specifically to, well, and I should also point out that um, really just in the last few months since the Biden administration has taken office, we've seen um, a real uh, shift in terms of the level of prioritization that climate change has, has received as a security issue. Um, I would say it's, it's always been up there, um, but the shift since the Obama administration, I'm sorry, since the Biden administration took office um, is that it's really become the central issue in national security. And you see that, for example, um, there was a NATO uh, summit uh, a few months ago where the alliance um, specifically said that they would take climate change uh, into account in all of its uh, military planning, uh, as well as actually consider moving toward uh, decarbonization of uh, military forces, which from an emissions perspective is actually not trivial, um, both because you know the, the sheer size of militaries like the US military or the Chinese military, you actually are talking about a significant amount of emissions associated with that, but also because, as you might imagine, um, there aren't many tanks or uh, fighter jets that are built um, with fuel efficiency in mind. That's generally not one of the you know, top uh, considerations. So if we can sort of take this whole class of equipment um, and, uh, and actually start to incorporate um, some, some climate sensitivity into it, that would actually uh, potentially be, be significant. Um, one uh, kind of um, thing that I think is a little bit the flip side of your question, but I do think is important when it comes to China uh, and, and thinking about military uh, issues and relations, that centrality that the Biden administration has attempted to, to give to climate change in national security and international security, um, I think will uh, persist and strengthen um, unless we see uh, a move toward a serious uh, confrontation with China, um, most likely over Taiwan, which is to say, I think the in some ways, the only major international or national security issue that I could see sort of threatening the centrality of climate change would be uh, a crisis or confrontation over Taiwan. Um, and so I think we just in thinking about the, the China dimension um, that is, I think, a bit of a wild card and a bit of a risk factor um, when it comes not just to the idea of, you know, uh, cooperating or, or coordinating with China on climate change, but just more generally, this effort to mainstream climate as the, the main kind of issue in, um, uh, in international and national security. A um, few other just kind of quicker points to note. Um, there is certainly a nexus with energy security. Um, uh, that's certainly been an issue for uh, China with respect to wanting to reduce dependency on oil uh, imports. At the moment, China is quite vulnerable to, for example, a, uh, a US or you know, allied-led blockade that would uh, disrupt uh, oil imports from the Middle East, from Southeast Asia. Um, so if China could sort of get to the point where it's more or less uh, uh, free from dependence on foreign um, seaborne uh, oil reserves, that would certainly strengthen its uh, energy security. Uh, on the flip side, um, Japan, major U.S. ally, is uh, entirely dependent on seaborne uh, oil imports, so to the extent that it can free itself um, from uh, that dependency, uh, it would also strengthen its kind of strategic position um, with respect to China, you know, North Korea, or other, uh, other potential security threats. Uh, last uh, point on that, um, you know, an important kind of part of China's military strategy uh, over the last few years has been the construction of these um, uh, artificial islands, particularly in the South China Sea, 
those are very vulnerable amongst other things to uh, sea level rise. Uh, and several of them are, you know, do feature seawalls and other kind of defenses. But um, I think it's worth uh, kind of keeping in mind in a future conflict, um, the extent to which those could be very vulnerable from a natural disaster as well as potentially um, a military attack. And same goes, of course, for um, uh, small Pacific islands um, that could potentially be used as uh, air bases or, or other things in a conflict. Um, so there's, there's that to contend with, um, I think, from a military uh, point of view as well. As the most consequential global issue of our time, climate leadership is important to both Beijing and Washington in the competition for governance legitimacy. As we've mentioned uh, multiple times uh, over the course of our conversation, you have an upcoming book that really delves into the shared challenges of climate change, public health, and emerging technologies, and this balance, this paradigm between competition and cooperation. What do you hope are the most significant takeaways of, of your research and how you think US and perhaps Chinese policymakers should both be thinking about these takeaways as they think about formulating the policy and making those formulating policy and making those decisions that will have such an impact uh, on the on our on our shared future. Well, uh, Nisai, as we as we've discussed a little bit before, you know, a lot of the book does focus on this idea of competition and how we can pursue shared uh, challenges and, and make progress on those on those goals, even given you know some differences and and, and tensions that are pretty fundamental. I do want to uh, just make clear that, uh, and I, I spend a fair amount of time in this in the book. That's not the ideal state. The ideal state is really uh, cooperation and to have a much more constructive. Um, relationship. But there are a lot of fundamental reasons, and I go into these um, in the book, that I just don't think um, that's in the cards, especially for the US and China in the foreseeable future. I think um, the interests, the uh, vision uh, of leadership, public opinion, uh, even economic trends, um, just kind of point us in, in slightly different uh, directions. But I think the takeaway um, that I would uh, want people to keep in mind is that doesn't necessarily mean um, that we have to give up on the idea of making real progress, important progress on these shared challenges like climate change. And in fact, particularly when it comes to climate, there are good ways that we can strengthen US national security. We can make the reforms and investments that we need uh, to continue to maintain an edge technologically in terms of innovation uh, over China. And at the same time, to help develop uh, the technologies that we need to solve the climate crisis. These things are not uh, entirely mutually exclusive uh, and to pursue one is not necessarily to the exclusion of the other. And I, I would just, uh, uh, if I had my, you know, my five minutes in an elevator with, uh, with the president or with a, a cabinet official, um, I would say, please read my book. Uh, I have a number of, uh, of things that, uh, that are in there that are really win-wins that can advance uh, US national security and foreign policy priorities while also advancing climate action and helping us address these shared challenges. Thank you so much, Scott, uh, for your thoughtful remarks and, and for speaking uh, with us today. I'm really looking forward to speaking for myself, looking forward to your book release next year. Um, we hope everyone who, to, uh, who tuned in enjoyed the program, found it informative, uh, and that folks will return for future National Committee programs. Uh, thanks again, everyone. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.